Hello to my dear 101 podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air again, and we are now into part two of Virginia. Last night, I talked about uh, the early um, history of Virginia leading up to the eve of the uh, American Revolution, or let alone uh, the Declaration of Independence. Regardless, revolution is in the air. So what is tonight's focal point with Virginia? Well, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, that we were going to be talking about four of the seven signers from Virginia, being Carter Braxton, Benjamin Harrison V, Thomas Jefferson, and George Wythe. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to start with our first uh, signer, being none other than Mr. Carter Braxton. And before I start, which book are we referring to? Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence. Carter Braxton. He was born in 1736. 1736, uh, that, it's interesting because um, he was, Mr. Braxton was born four years after George Washington was. He was born, say, a year after John Adams he was born um, a year before uh, John Hancock. So it's safe to say that Carter Braxton is right in that line with some of our forefathers being born just before him or just right after. But nonetheless, um, he is the son of a rich planter, and his mother was the daughter of Robert, or should I say Robert King Carter, who was the richest man in colonial America in his day with land holdings that stretched as far west as present-day Ohio. Mr. Carter, or rather King Carter, owned about 42 plantations. What does that tell us right there? This man had lots and lots of land, and not just land, money as well. Land and money go hand in hand. As a matter of fact, um, I know uh, a couple of plantations that uh, Robert King Carter would have um, owned, uh, most notably in the Northern Neck. These two plantations, um, their home structures are no longer there, but they were uh, Nomini and Corotaman. As for the Carter family, they still live in this day um, at Shirley Plantation, which is open to the public. It's on uh, Route 5, just west of Williamsburg in uh, Charles City County. Well, Mr. Braxton sadly lost both of his parents at an early age. He was therefore raised by family friends. He turns out uh, to have graduated from William and Mary. And he marries um, just before 21, and sadly, his first wife dies in 1757 after the birth of their second child. We have to remember, too, people, that um, it was very common for a young man and a young woman to get married before the age of 21, because for one, life expectancy wasn't high, and two, um, if you had a lot of resources, meaning land and money, you would want to get married as soon as possible so that the... Um, process known as primogeniture, being that the first male-born child in every household would be entitled to um, receive their, uh, what you call, um, proper inheritance once they reach the age that, of maturity to where they are um, qualified to handle their uh, proper affairs. 
Well, uh, Mr. Braxton does remarry. He remarries around in the 1760s to Elizabeth Corbin. Now, he already has two children from the first marriage. Well, he and Mrs. Miss Elizabeth Corbin produce 16 children. So when you combine both marriages, that's a total of 18 kids. And as I've said before from a previous pod- podcast, um, it was very common for families to have more, 10 children or more, because... Uh, for one, life expectancy isn't high, and say you have 12 children, you, your hopes are that six or seven will live to um, adulthood. Well, Mr. Braxton uh, became heavily invested in a practice that, even in today's time, does shed a lot of eyebrows and suspicions, and um, it's a dark uh, side of history. It's something that has not gone away in terms of erasing the past, and it probably won't until the end of time. But Mr. Braxton did participate in um, the slave trade business. But, but his dealings weren't through Virginia, which I found um, odd. But I've also come to realize that uh, this uh, practice was not confined to just the southern colonies, it was confined to both it was confined in the middle and northern colonies as well. None of the thirteen colonies were exempt from the practice. It just so happens that the Brown family of Providence, Rhode Island, were big into this uh, practice. And it turns out that Brown University is named after the none other than the Brown family of Providence, Rhode Island, where the school is located. On one hand, you could say that's a small world in terms of that connection, but on the other hand, um, given the practice, one would say that it um, isn't the most um, prominent of connections. I'm not here to debate that part, but it is something that I've had to remind myself of. What else can we say about Carter Braxton that's worth uh, mentioning? Well, there are a lot of other things that he in my mind, would be um, remembered for doing for all the better reasons. Well, for one, uh, given that he has a lot of um, wealth himself through having married his second wife, he serves in the House of Burgesses. And serving in the House of Burgesses was a very, very noble thing for a legislator to do. Of course, in order to serve in the House of Burgesses, you have to have money, you have to be You have to be of white status. You have to uh, be of Protestant status, and and not just Protestant status alone. You you must adhere to the Anglican Church, or should I say the Church of England, because the Church of England is probably not going to allow um, those who are in the um, House of Burgesses to be uh, what you call Baptists or Methodists, uh, people who are... um, going to perhaps um, cause uh, conflict from when from within the uh, chamber. But anyways, uh, Mr. Braxton's, um, he had many um, colleagues of uh, noteworthy importance, but one of them was Patrick Henry. The, these were uh, tense times around the period that Mr. Braxton was in the House of Burgesses, most notably a rebellion against the Stamp Act, led by Mr. Patrick Henry, who, along with many other Burgesses, truly believed that only the people 
Or should I say that the Burgesses were the only people who had the authority to tax Virginians? In other words, the members of Parliament had no right to tax Virginians because Virginians did not elect people from Parliament. Only those from England did. So, Mr. Braxton does support opposition of Stamp Act, which is a great thing, and, I, and he was probably very elated that it was repealed, but at the same time, he is very hesitant in breaking with England. In other words, here he is a part of that planter ruling class, and breaking with England, especially, especially if you're in the planter ruling class of Virginia in the 1760s or leading up to 1770, is probably going to be the last thing you're going to do. Um, because given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, Virginia is still enjoying a lot of advantages despite opposition to, to the Stamp Act. Now, there was a hostile situation in Williamsburg just before um, the First Continental Congress um, was established. And Mr. Braxton became a key player in this matter. It had to do with gunpowder at the Williamsburg Magazine. And I've been in the magazine house many of times, and it's always um, great to be in, in that building, along with any other building on uh, Duke of Gloucester Street that's uh, col colonial um, history related. But um, Lord Dunmore, otherwise his name was John Murray, he was the last uh, royal governor of Virginia, he had, he had ordered seizure of all gunpowder in the magazine. Patrick Henry, led by a group, who led a group of militiamen, demanded that the gunpowder be returned or have it be returned in means of a full payment. How does Carter Braxton save the day? He diffuses the situation by doing the following. He spoke to Lord, or should I say Governor Dunmore's representative on Patrick Henry's behalf to reach a compromise. So the governor therefore paid up, and the Patriots emerged victorious. He was able to judge, or should I say juggle, two different political worlds at the same time. He was a member of the aristocracy or the landed gentry, but he was on good terms with radicals like Patrick Henry. So in other words, he didn't burn bridges with both, with either side. In other words, he was, he was still hesitant to separate from England, but yet he was willing to do whatever was necessary to benefit those who wanted independence. In other words, um, it's safe to say that while Mr. Braxton, um, knew that conflict was inevitable, he also was willing to do whatever it was to prevent it from being um, escalated into something that uh, could have been avoided. And in this case, he was able to defuse a very tense situation at the um, magazine house. Who was Governor Dunmore's representative, by the way? Richard Corbin, none other than Mr. Braxton's father-in-law. And that's another bridge that Mr. Braxton couldn't afford to burn either. So basically, when you look at it from all angles, Mr. Braxton's being watched, but at the same time, he's got to do everything there is possible to make sure that, um, that people around him um, not only just respect him, but um, 
approve of his um, decision making because if not, then he will um, be bound to lose not just uh, one friend but multiple friends regardless of where they're standing on the situation with England. While yes, Mr. Braxton was very hesitant on uh, declaring his independence. Why so? Because in his eyes, the colonies were defenseless. It's one thing to declare or to wish to choose separation from England, but if you don't have the means to defend yourself, especially against the British military being the largest and the mightiest in the world, then how um, can independence become a true reality? He goes to Philadelphia, and on July 1st, he's, he's opposing independence. But somehow on July 2nd, he, he goes along with the rest of the crowd. I think it's fair to say that, that the rest of the Virginia delegation was in support of, of uh, separation, and therefore Mr. Braxton did not want to be the oddball out. So he probably did the right thing by voting with the uh, rest of the group. Even though he voted in favor of independence, he still remained uncomfortable with the idea of democracy. I, th there, I think it's safe to say for Mr. Braxton, you know, it's one thing to um, rid yourself of a um, monarch or, um, or a ruler who practices harsh rule being tyranny. However, um, it, many historians will say, okay, if you remove one person from power, who are you going to replace that individual with? And it's probably fair to say in Carter Braxton's eyes, okay, if, they want, if we want democracy, how successful is it going to be? In other words, is it still going to be around a year from now, or let alone five to ten years? Well, despite his hesitancies, Mr. Braxton did help the American cause throughout the war. He bought supplies for troops, lent 25,000 pounds to the government, he had partnered with the British government, investing in sailing vessels, but their ships, along with the cargo, were seized, and his investments uh, plummeted. And even though Mr. Braxton himself had lent 25,000 pounds of his own money to the government, he was never repaid back. But... Do we know if he uh, bore resentment to the government for that? No, we, we have no records knowing. He dies in 1797 at age 61. However, the exact, however, the location of his plot has never been located to this day. Historians do know that some of his family is buried in a plot in Richmond, but as for his exact plot, it's still um, unknown. He is known as the signer who had 18 children. Moving on to uh, signer number two, being Mr. Benjamin Harrison. He was born in 1726. He came from a wealthy family of planters from Berkeley Plantation. And Berkeley is not far from uh, Shirley, and it too is west of Williamsburg along the James River. Charles City County um, is home to many um, historic plantations. Even one of Virginia's future presidents, John Tyler, lived in Charles City in a place known as uh, Sherwood Forest. 
Well, Benjamin Harrison is a grandson of Robert, or should I say Robert King Carter. He is a cousin to fellow signers like Carter Braxton and Thomas Nelson. He is the fifth person of the same name in his family. He attended William and Mary, but left as a result of a family tragedy, and this was a very sad one. His father, along with two siblings, were killed in a lightning storm. Can't imagine, you know, losing um, more than one family member um, as a result of a lightning storm, or let alone any kind of a medical disease or illness in the 18th century. However, um, despite this tragic circumstance, he became a successful businessman and ran eight plantations as well as a shipping business. He was elected to the House of Burgesses. He was sympathetic to the Patriots' cause beginning with the Stamp Act of 1765. He was sent to the First Congress from 1773 to 1776 and was involved with, the, with attending conventions to writing letters. And I didn't know this um, even when I read the book last year, but of course I reread it. Uh, I reread, um, I've been rereading segments on each of our um, signers who we've talked about, but I was uh, reminded that Mr. Uh, Harrison actually became president of Congress during the time that, uh, that debates were going on leading up to um, the Committee of Five um, submitting the Declaration of Independence document. Now, Mr. Harrison was elected uh, chair of the committee of the whole, which meant that he was presiding over congressional debates. He chaired two major debates, the July 2nd vote on independence and the July 4th adoption of the Declaration. He also headed debates on the Articles of Confederation, which was our... Um, which was our uh, governing body until uh, 1787 when we um, knew that the Articles of Confederation were too weak and had to be replaced, and it was ultimately replaced with a document that's still in existence today, the U.S. Constitution. He left Congress in 1778 to become Speaker of the Virginia Legislature. He was a strong advocate for the Bill of Rights, being the first ten amendments to the Constitution, he served three terms as Virginia's fifth governor. In 1791, he passed away at the age of 65. His descendants include two U.S. presidents, one from Virginia and one from Ohio, the one from Virginia being none other than William Henry Harrison and the one from Ohio being a Mr. Benjamin Harrison. Now uh, we're moving on to the next two signers. Signer number three is none other than Mr. Thomas Jefferson. Now, we should all know who Mr. Thomas Jefferson is. I mean, of course, most of us would know that he was our nation's third president and that he was the author of the Declaration of Independence. But there is so much more to Thomas Jefferson that we should be reminded of. I can tell you, for one, that he is my favorite Virginian to read about. And I have read a great deal of books on Thomas Jefferson throughout my life and look forward to reading more as, as time goes along. 
Uh, Thomas Jefferson himself was born in 1743. How true or false? Was Thomas Jefferson born at Monticello? False. Monticello wasn't around in 1743. He was born and raised at Shadwell, which was a plantation in Albemarle County located near the Ravana River. It turns out that Shadwell was named for a parish in London, England by his father, Peter Jefferson, who was a well-to-do planter and surveyor in central Virginia. Shadwell is the parish in England where young Thomas Jefferson's mother, Jane Randolph, not only came from, but where she was christened. I didn't know this uh, myself, and it is worth noting. Jefferson's father purchased the Shadwell property from an, from another previous owner and this from and that's something i found very interesting so there were already people living in shadwell um before he purchased the property but before um europeans uh settled in shadwell the property itself though was inhabited by the monacan indian peoples there was uh, what's called a crossroads uh, settlement located between the three notched and old mountain roads. Thomas Jefferson's mother, being Jane Randolph, was one of a select group of wealthy landowner families in Virginia. So if, if you were a Randolph, you were bound to have um, lots of owner, land ownership throughout Virginia. And the Randolphs themselves were... Uh, were very prominent in the House of Burgesses and, uh, and just in Williamsburg in general. It's safe to say that Jefferson came from a very uh, strong, privileged family. However, he sadly lost his father at age 14, but did inherit a large, a large estate, including servants. And because he came from a privileged family, he received, um, or should I say, he, his family could afford to give him a private education. He attended William and Mary and arrived into Williamsburg at age 17. And who was one of the most prominent people he met at William and Mary? Well, he met a fair number of prominent people, but most, the most important one in his mind was a Mr. George Wythe who not only became a father figure to him, but he was his law professor. Now, in 1760, um, who is the royal governor of Virginia? Does anybody want to take a guess? That answer is none other than Francis Fauquier. Why is he important? Well, there's a county in Virginia named Fauquier County named after Francis Fauquier. And in case any of you don't know where, where Fauquier County is, it's in northern Virginia. It's in what's known as uh, Fox and Hunt Country. Uh, you can get on uh, onto Fauquier County going up Interstate 95 and then getting onto US 17. Well, is it safe to say that Thomas Jefferson himself is a lifelong learner? Absolutely. He was a diplomat, an architect, played musical instruments like the violin. He invented the first swivel chair, 
to designing his own home, being Monticello, as well as his tombstone when he, before he passed away. And he was an avid farmer. He was known to have grown 20 different variety of peas. And, he, and one of his favorite uh, soups was split pea soup. Did he try uh, planting wine grapes? Yes, he did. He tried seven times but failed on every try, but still gets credit for being our nation's first wine connoisseur. He started building Monticello in 1768, but it wasn't officially completed until after 1809, being the year his presidency ended. Whom was he married to? Martha Whale Skelton. He married her in 1772. She had been married before and had a son. I learned this some years back, but um, Thomas Jefferson himself attended college with her first husband, being Bathurst Skelton. But Martha Skelton's uh, family, uh, being the Wales family, her father was John Wales, he owned several tracts of land, and his land holdings stretched as far west as Bedford County, which is where the Peaks of Otter is located, but a future home that Jefferson would build uh, that was completed before his presidency ended, and it's, and it's in existence still today. Uh, the people of Bedford County back in the early 80s came to the rescue to save the home. It's none, none other than Poplar Forest, which was the first octagonal um, home built in the 19th century. So he enters the House of Burgesses at the age of 26. He earns far greater rec recognition for being a writer versus a speaker. He's elected to, to the Continental Congress in 1775, but arrives in May of 1776 to Philadelphia. Why was Jefferson chosen to write the Declaration of Independence? Number one, he had very few enemies. And secondly, most notably in Virginia, many people knew how excellent of a writer he was. Is it safe to say that there were some members of, in the Continental Congress that might have had, um, that might have had some enemies from within? It's safe to say yes, but at the same time, though, Thomas Jefferson being this newcomer, it's safe to say that, hey, why not give the, the, the job of uh, writing the Declaration of Independence to someone who, who um, doesn't have a lot of enemies, but someone who just has superb writing skills. It was a great choice. Obviously, John Adams said it well. He told Jefferson himself, hey, I'm, you're a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to write the Declaration of Independence. It's probably wise that he said that because, for one, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, and two, all the other colonies, if they were going to make a move, they had to go through Virginia in order to do so. So nonetheless, it was a perfect match-made um, choice um, to have Jefferson do this. Here's a little bonus question. Uh, how many days do you think it took Thomas Jefferson to get from Virginia to Philadelphia? The answer is about nine. 
Well, for starters, there are no cars and there are no trains or airplanes, or let alone, I should say, there's no such thing as planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> like that famous movie back in the late 80s with uh, John Candy and Steve Martin. So how does Thomas Jefferson get to Philadelphia? Well, he can go by horse, or he can take what's called a horse and buggy. And we have to remember, too, that, that okay, if it's taking about nine days, um, you can only cover but so much ground in one day. You might be lucky if you could make it 20 miles somewhere without having anything go wrong. Historians do know that if one traveled about 30 miles in one day, they really did accomplish a lot of um, ground. And it's safe to say that, too, because you never know what you could be encountering. Think about it. The, the roads are not the best. I mean, think about it. We don't have asphalt uh, paved roads. You're navigating through um, muddy roads, um, which you call that are, are clay. Uh, and if it rains, it doesn't make it even better. I mean, there's just a lot of uncertainty when traveling on on roads. Now, historians know, on the other hand, that some of our forefathers actually arrived to Philadelphia by ferry, uh, most notably in the South, like South, like in the Carolinas and Georgia. And even in the northern colonies, uh, some of the uh, men coming from, say, New York and uh, Massachusetts and perhaps Rhode Island and Connecticut would have um, arrived uh, by ferry to Pennsylvania. So it's safe to say that means of tra uh, that the means of traveling was moving up to a certain de degree. Now, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence document on a portable writing desk he invented. He was known to have said that the document was an expression of the American mind. And given that he was on that Committee of Five not only just himself, but with John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. The Committee of Five submitted the Declaration document to Congress on June 28th. And see, there again, we've all been led to believe that everything was done on the 4th of July, and that's not true. Once the vote for independence passed, all the other delegates started revising the process on the document. Here, Thomas Jefferson is a great writer, but I can only imagine how much of a headache it must have been knowing um, how many revisions it was going to have to take in order for the document to, um, how do you call it, in order for that document to finally be a true uh, success. I'll give you the... Um, hint, or should I say, I'll give you a number. The number is between 85 and 90. The answer is 86. 86 revisions were made before the final version of the document was approved. Well, after the Declaration of Independence was um, approved, he returned to Virginia, where he served in the legislature. And what was his biggest achievement... I'll give you a hint. It took seven years to pass, but he uh, laid the foundation for what we have today as part of the uh, Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. His biggest achievement in the legislature, or should I say in the Virginia legislature, was the passage of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. 
Thomas Jefferson was not a big fan of the Church of England. As a matter of fact, he probably may have been the first outspoken critic of the Church of England. Now, when he was growing up, his family attended uh, the Anglican Church, given that the Randolphs aren't, it's not so much that they are, they are wealthy landowners, but, the, but because they are wealthy landowners, their allegiances are with the Anglican Church. But he begins to question the Anglican Church's uh, practices or teachings in the 1760s. And it's safe to say that at this time, some of these uh, practices can come into question because here we are uh, already um, rallying in opposition to the Stamp Act, taxation without representation. Well, if you adhere to the Anglican Church, you're going to support whatever Parliament passes. If you don't, then how can you call yourself a true Anglican? Well, um, for Tom, while this was a great accomplishment, that is the statute for religious freedom, Thomas Jefferson sadly did experience um, a terrible loss. His wife Martha died in 1783, and it took him a long time to get over her loss. But a year later, he becomes ambassador to France, where he stays from 1784 to 1789. When George Washington becomes president, Thomas Jefferson becomes our nation's first secretary of state. George Washington, of course, is a Federalist, and his cabinet is comprised of both uh, Federalists and Anti-Federalists. His goal is to hope that uh, everybody can work together despite their uh, party, their what you call political differences. Well, if there was one person in uh, the Washington administration whom Thomas Jefferson had a very hard time getting along with, it was none other than Alexander Hamilton. As brilliant of a person as Mr. Hamilton was when it came to finances and running the Treasury Department, Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Jefferson were just complete opposites. I mean, that, that was what we would call a not-so-good match made in heaven right there. Well, Thomas Jefferson does become the third president. And what's ironic about him is that he is the first non-federalist uh, candidate to become president. He is vice president to John Adams. But Thomas Jefferson um, becomes the first of uh, what we call not just anti-federalist but democratic-republican um, candidate to become president. And this is a very uh, challenging time in the country's um, infancy still. It's one thing for someone to become president, but now we're dealing with someone from a new party that we have never seen before. Now the bigger question is, can the country still remain afloat? And of course, by 1801, when he becomes president, George Washington's already gone. Well, Jefferson did accomplish a lot in his presidency, but the biggest one was uh, the Louisiana Purchase. Um, he was responsible for overseeing our nation's territory double. And as a result of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, Lewis, or should I say Meriwether Lewis and William Clark led an expedition all the way out to the Pacific coast. And I think what's even more remarkable about the Louisiana Purchase was that we, bought, we were given the territory from France, but we didn't have to go to war just to receive the territory. 
That's not to say that there were some tense negotiations, but in the end, um, the fact that we didn't have to go to war um, was remarkable unto itself. Well, after he left the presidency in 1809, his friendship with John Adams, who was uh, our nation's second president, was restored. And even when Jefferson was vice president to John Adams, the two of them started to have uh, falling outs with um, their political ideological ideological, uh, differences. And I think it might be safe to say that one of the um, one factor that could have uh, led to a fallout was when John Adams uh, signed a bill into law, and I mentioned this from a previous podcast, known as the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Those acts basically prevented um, people who made uh, remarks questioning the government um, to be acceptable. Those who questioned the government were put in jail. Thomas Jefferson saw this as a huge violation of free speech. He even told John Adams that you are infringing upon people's everyday rights to freely express themselves, not just verbally, but in written newspapers. And it is very safe to say that even in the time of our forefathers, there were many of newspapers out there, and newspapers catered to both Federalists and Anti-Federalists, but even the newspapers themselves were very partisan. But nonetheless, in 1809, Thomas Jefferson's uh, friendship with John Adams is restored, thanks in part to Dr. Benjamin Rush from Pennsylvania, who was a fellow signer of the Declaration of Independence. It was Benjamin Rush who had a grand envision that two former friends who had um, experienced an unfortunate falling out, would one day reunite with each other. Benjamin Rush was quite the savior. If it hadn't been for him, I don't know who would have been able to have reunited John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And you think about it. George Washington's already gone. You've got two former presidents. They need to be able to um, set some kind of an example for the young country to go by, despite uh, being from different parties. Well, The two of them wrote hundreds of letters uh, to one another from the time their friendship was renewed until their passings, given that they both passed away on July 4th, 1826, hours apart. And of course, uh, Thomas Jefferson died on the morning of July 4th, and he was known to have said to his servant, is it the 4th? In other words, did I live to make it to the 4th, being our 50th anniversary. Well, John Adams dies later that day, and his last words were, Thomas Jefferson survives. What a fitting way for both men to go. Although it is safe to say, though, that when John Adams died, he did not leave a vast amount of debt behind him. Sadly, Thomas Jefferson died with an unprecedented amount of debt, almost 110000 How did he get this far in debt? Well, you have to remember, uh, for starters, people who lived in the um, plantation aristocracy or that planter um, elite group, 
credit could be given to them at any time, simply in part because of what their status was in society. And and the problem, though, is that um, for many of these men, or should I say people, it's one thing to be given, be giving them money. The problem is, is that they have too many other people around them that they have to um, return favors to, or do uh, what you call projects for them. And in Jefferson's time, it was a very common practice for men to co-sign for one another. Well, people still co-sign for one another today, but it's for di- usually for different purposes. Of course, in Jefferson's day, there were no such things as uh, car loans, um, but there were loans. However, uh, one friend of his um, had uh, begged for Jefferson to return the favor, which Jefferson did. However, Jefferson signed a co-signed on a huge note. I think it was about twenty thousand or more dollars. Sadly, this individual died, and guess what happens? All of that debt gets placed on Thomas Jefferson. Had Jefferson not co-signed for this man, he yes, he still would have been in debt, but he would not have gone over a hundred thousand dollars. Well, uh, long story short, Monticello is um, sold. And it's no longer in his family's uh, possession. That part I could tell you in another book that I read uh, a year ago. And it has to do with um, the Levy family who ultimately saved Monticello. And if it hadn't been for that family, Monticello would not be um, even around today. But there again, that's for another time. Despite dying in um, vast amount of debt... What three accomplishments did Thomas Jefferson want to be remembered for? They are listed on his tombstone. Number one, the author of the Declaration of Independence. Number two, the author for the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedoms. And lastly, the founder of the University of Virginia. I've grown up with the University of Virginia all my life. It's been like a second second school to me. I wanted to go there for the longest time, but unfortunately I just did not have the right SAT scores to get in. However, when I walk the grounds, or should I say whenever I have the chance to walk the grounds, we don't call the University of Virginia the campus. We call it the grounds. Whenever I walk the grounds, or should I say Mr. Jefferson's Academical Village, I like to think of myself as a student. I say this because I've grown up with UVA all of my life. I've been going to football games for years, basketball games. I have uh, been with my family for other occasions. I've been to Monticello for lots of other occasions. Charlottesville is a fantastic place. Uh, my folks lived there for for a period of time after they were married. Uh, Of course, it has grown up a lot since they lived there back in the 1970s. Uh, But if Thomas Jefferson saw just how well the University of Virginia was doing today, he would be um, in great awe. I say this because when he died in 1826, or just before his death, he died knowing the University of Virginia wasn't going to make it. The school's first um, blocks were laid in 1817. But prior to it being the University of Virginia, it was known as Central College. But 
the university was officially named the University of Virginia in 1819, but the first group of students did not enter the grounds until 1825. And when Thomas Jefferson met the first group of men, he literally broke down in tears and cried after seeing these men. Another good book for any of you out there who want to know more about the University of Virginia or, I mean, there are a lot of good ones, but there is one in particular that's very well worth reading. It's called Rot, Riot, and Rebellion. The first 25 years of the university's existence. What I can tell you is this, and I read this book about four years ago, four or five years ago. The first group of students who came to the University of Virginia, or not just the first group, but the first years of the school's existence, the groups of young men who came to the school were not what you call men who wanted to learn. They were men who were scions, that is, sons who, were, um, who came from elite families, elite families who had money. These young men cared about partying. If we thought the, Del- if we thought the um, men from Delta Tau Chi and John... Um, in that famous uh, comedy, Animal House, from 1978, were bad. The first waves of students attending the University of Virginia made Delta Tau Chi 100... They made Delta Tau Chi look nothing. I can tell you right now that the first years of the school's existence, students, um, students um, threatened professors, cursed at them, and, and there were a few instances where professors were murdered by students. We've all been led to believe that, oh, academical villages are where uh, students are always wanting to learn and abide by the rules. Well, in 1825, there was no such thing. Part of that could be attributed to the fact that Thomas Jefferson, given that he was such a strong advocate for religious freedom, did not even allow for religion to be taught at the University of Virginia. And it took about 25 years just for the University of Virginia to really establish Uh, major consistency, and not just consistency with getting students on the right track, but also to finally implement religion as a, um, as a, what we would now call a concentration of study, or a field of major, And and you can major in religion and philosophy at the University of Virginia, even to this day, but just so that you know, just so that you all know out there, when the university first opened its doors, for about 25 years, religion was not taught at UVA. How, why so? Thomas Jefferson feared that if religion was taught, it would be favoring one sect over another, and then this would be the uh, phrase, a violation of church and state. Not teaching religion to Jefferson meant that, um, that um, there would be no violation of church and state. But what we now know is that it's okay to teach religion in colleges, whether it's public or private. I say that because we're not favoring one religious sect over another. We're not violating church and state. We're not compelling people against their own will to adhere to one practice over the over another. I think Thomas Jefferson would be very happy to know that um, that after twenty uh, that after the first twenty five years of the university's existence, that religion was taught and it was taught in a manner that did not violate church and state. 
Well, uh, now we are on to our fourth and final uh, signer from Virginia. Thomas Jefferson is uh, connected with this fourth signer. His name is George Wythe. And as I mentioned earlier, Thomas Jefferson's law professor, William and Mary, is none other than Mr. George Wythe. Well, George Wythe is born in 1726. Does anybody want... Well, before I get start talking about George Wythe, when Thomas Jefferson dies in 1826, he is 83 years old. And he... And, you know, very few people made it to 83. John Adams almost made it to 91. He was 90. But despite Jefferson being um, in debt uh, towards the end of his life, to have made it to 83 was very uh, remarkable. But now back to George Wythe. Mr. Wythe was born in 1726. He is the son of a planter. He lost his father at the age of three. Sadly, a lot of um, children lost their parents at young ages. We try not to think of that in today's world in large part because life, ex life expectancy is much higher. There have been many advancements in medicine, which is great. But we do f tend to take for granted that um, children in the 18th century were bound to um, frequent death more than we as uh, a society do in today's time. Mr. Wythe was born in a place called Chesterville, Virginia. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's another uh, town that's in, in its place, or should I say city. It's very well known, Hampton. And it just so turns out that where George Wythe um, was born, the land that sits on, his, on what was his home is now Langley Air Force Base. His home was in existence up until 1911. My wife and I uh, found that out the last time we were in uh, Colonial Williamsburg back at the uh, start of uh, June. As a matter of fact, George Wythe's home in Williamsburg, the original home, is still there. It's a must to see. And, that, and that's one of my favorite homes that I do enjoy going into. Of course, I like going into a lot of other places in Colonial Williamsburg, but Mr. Wythe's house is one of those homes. Well, he studies law under an uncle at his firm, and what do you know? He passes the bar at the age of 20. Mr. Wythe had a very uh, fundamental principle that he um, followed up until, up until the time he probably stopped practicing law. He was said to drop clients who were known to lie. He had no desire to represent those who weren't honest. Well, it's like that saying in today's time, an honest politician is often a dead one. Of course, in George Wythe's time, yes, he was honest, but, he, but his biggest fear was fearing those who weren't honest. In 1754, he's elected to the House of Burgesses, and he also serves as mayor of Williamsburg. In the 1760s, he sees... Um, two things that impact his life forever. Number one, a young law student working at his law firm being Thomas Jefferson. And Mr. Jefferson stays at his law firm for about five years. And then secondly, the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765. When Parliament passed the Stamp Act, it enraged 
um, several people in Williamsburg, like Patrick Henry to Richard Henry Lee, but it also enraged George Wythe. How so? Well, taxation without representation. It's one thing to be taxed, but if you weren't given consent, if you weren't allowed to voice your um, objections, then why should you be subjected to something that you never had any say to begin with? This act sealed Mr. Wythe's fate as a patriot. He even went as far as to crafting a document in response to the measure. He was sent to uh, Congress in 1774. He suggested that America could be separate, but also an equal nation within the British Empire. How is this um, relevant in today's world? Well, it turns out that there are nations like Canada and Australia whom are separate but are on equal footing within the British Empire, or should I say the United Kingdom. Uh, Canada um, was um, a part of the uh, United Kingdom up until, I believe, 1867. And, of course, Australia would become its own um, country, but yet it still would be linked with the United Kingdom, just like Canada. George Wythe was the first congressman to suggest forming alliances with other nations. Well, that might have become very helpful um, when France decided to join um, the um, young United States in defeating uh, Britain in the American Revolution. Well, Mr. Wythe leaves Congress in 1776 to help Thomas Jefferson set up Virginia's new government and legal code system. He even drafted the state constitution and the state seal. And, of course, he was a very beloved law professor. And it's very safe to say that he was the first law professor in the United States. He helped persuade Virginia's legislators to ratify the U.S. Constitution. He is credited with helping Virginia become the 10th U.S. state to ratify the document. Well, George Wythe taught many famous uh, Virginians who went on to become successful lawyers. He taught John Marshall, who was Thomas Jefferson's cousin. Of course, John Marshall goes on to become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He mentors uh, James Monroe. He, he uh, even mentors um, a fellow by the name of Henry Clay, who is from Ashland, Virginia. And, of course, Henry Clay would go on to become a senator from Kentucky and had an estate in Kentucky known as Ashland, named after Ashland, Virginia. George Wythe was one of two signers to die from violence. Who wanted to kill George Wythe? I mean, in other words, who wanted to kill this man who had accomplished so much, not just for Virginia, but for colonial America? Well, I could tell you this, there weren't any enemies in the continent, from the Continental Congress or from the House of Bur- Burgesses or let alone um, from within Williamsburg. The answer, sadly, lies from within the family, being a great-grand-nephew, George Wythe Sweeney. Why so? 
The answer is greed. Now, I feel it is important to uh, give you all, the audience, what I know caused George Wythe to die at the hands of his great-grandnephew. What I can tell you this, too, is that there is a book uh, written by Bruce Chadwick, uh, which was uh, written about 11 or 12 years ago, called I Am Murdered. It's it's about George Wythe, George Wythe, and basically it was a death that shocked the nation. I read the book last year. It was a phenomenal read, uh, but from what I read in the book Signing Their Lives Away, uh, the authors did a very good job of uh, detailing what they felt was necessary to explain behind Mr. Wythe's death. Well, we do know this, that for one, George Wythe was um, an ardent abolitionist. He became, in later years of his life, an abolitionist, one who wanted to see the institution of slavery done away with altogether. He had been married twice. His first wife died uh, many years earlier, but he did remarry. And then his second wife passes away, and he freed the servants. There were two servants who were very loyal to him. A Mrs. A Miss Lydia Broadnax, who was the housekeeper, and her son, Michael Brown, whom George Wythe uh, mentored and tutored, whom was, um, I should say Michael Brown was mentored and tutored under uh, Mr. Wythe. Both mother and son were to inherit part of Wythe's estate when he died. Now, remember people, um, George Wythe is no longer living in Williamsburg at the end of his life. As a matter of fact, after the American Revolutionary War, and even... um, in 1779, when the capital moves from Williamsburg to Richmond, sadly, Williamsburg goes into um, massive decline. It's no longer the, um, what do you call it, the um, focal place to go. It is no longer um, what it was prior to the war. So Richmond is the capital, and obviously the capital to this day, But Richmond, even when Mr. Wythe was living there, was a very, very um, rowdy city. It almost would have been the equivalent of the American West, as um, Bruce Chadwick um, points out in uh, the book, um, I Am Murdered. Now, in Richmond, um, there is a lot of um, strife. There is a lot of um, conflict um, in the capital Um, people are um, gambling left and right. So when you're gambling left and right, how can you go about ensuring um, that legislation and order uh, be maintained? Well, George Wythe Sweeney, being George Wythe's great-grandnephew, it was his sister's uh, grandson... He is 19 years of age in 1806. He is a troubled youth. He is a heavy drinker. He is a gambler. Uh, He really just has no bright future ahead of him. However, George Wythe sought to do everything there was to be a good role model to this young man. And why not? Because he was such a great role model to countless young men. As a matter of fact, before his second wife passed away for a number of years... 
Um, the two of them housed young men um, in their home. As a matter of fact, even they even paid for some of their uh, education, those who could not afford to pay for it. The Withs were kind enough to do that in return. So it's safe to say that they were like,